Welcome, welcome back to Studio Secrets A to Z, and we're going to jump right into part two of the Michael Beinhorn interview. How did you hook up with Soundgarden, for instance? I mean, there's so many records, but let's get into Soundgarden. Well, funnily enough, I mean, I didn't really know who who Soundgarden were. I mean, a friend of mine who had coincidentally mixed the Uplift Mofo Party Plan record said that he wanted me to listen to this record by this group, Soundgarden. Wow. Uh, he wanted me to listen to Louder Than Love because there was a song on it called Big Dumb Sex where the guy's talking about, I want to fuck, 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 you know, which yeah. back then was kind of like a novelty. He thought it was like really funny and stuff. And yeah. I listened to it and I was kind of like, okay, yeah. and <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Like got we got some laughs. Good. And I didn't really think too much of it. So when my manager, who was not Kathy at this time, a guy named John Warner, called me up one day and asked me, uh, are you familiar with Soundgarden? I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm not like a fan. I don't really know them that well. You know, I heard a song or two. Oh, I think I'd seen them live. I can't remember. Yeah, I saw, I saw them live like the year before or something like that at Roseland. Okay. The, Rose, yeah. the Roseland Ballroom? Yeah, that's right, in New York. I love that place. I'm, I'm so sad that it's yeah. gone. And I used to go to Victor's Cuban Cafe across the street all the time. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I love, wow. you know Victor's? I've never been in there, but oh, I remember it. It's just a wonderful place. Anyway, so I'm sorry to get off the, <laughs> off the path no, of man, Cuban it's food. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cuban, so, so Cuban food's yeah. always a good place to get off a path. <laughs> um, One of my favorites. So cool. So you ended up going to the Rosalind Ballroom, and you. what was it like hearing Chris Cornell's voice for the first time live? It's It was so weird to me because, like, his stage presence really kind of overshadowed everything. I mean, the band just looked like they didn't want to be up there. And Chris was kind of like, you know, he most of the time it seemed like he was singing sideways instead of looking at the audience. And I was kind of like, this guy's really not connecting very well. <laughs> and that was that was the beginning of an era. I mean, that's the, that was like the yeah. thing, you know? So I had that familiarity. I was kind of underwhelmed by seeing them. And, you know, like it didn't mean a whole lot. But obviously... I discovered pretty fast that people were really into this band and they were successful and they'd just been on a massive tour with Guns N' Roses. And, you know, I was kind of like, okay. Uh, And John said, well, they've looks like they got a a producer on board. And I was like, well, then why are you calling me and asking me if I know who Soundgarden are? (laughs) And he was like, it's not engraved in stone. You know, I think you should go meet with them. And he was like, I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, take a meeting. I can hook you up. And I was like, sure. <laughs> Why not? Let's see what yeah. happens. And I went up, we met. It was kind of uncomfortable, but I felt like it was a good overall connection. And then I went home and waited for a week. And I was like starting to get more and more itchy because I hadn't heard anything and I just called my manager and he's like, nothing yet. And I started to get, I was starting to get nervous. Like, yep. ah, ah, did I want me or not? I can't take the suspense. <laughs> <laughs> and finally I was at a friend's wedding in Miami and I got a phone call, you know, that they wanted me to produce the record. I was like, Oh, awesome. <laughs> another wonderful day. And uh, then they sent me a cassette tape of demos for the record. And I heard it and I was like, uh-oh, because the demo had 11, 12 songs on it. I think it was 11. And out of 
that 11, five of them were in any condition, any like any kind of condition at all to be recorded or even sounded like halfway decent as songs. The rest of it was either jamming or stuff that was like, this isn't that good. And I had to make a decision right then. Like these guys have just said they want me to produce their record and I am getting ready to tell them that they don't have the material for the record. I don't know how they're going to take this. Yep. They may not like me very much, but, and I had to, you know, I had to kind of wrestle with that and go like, this is my job. Yeah. My exactly. job is to be honest with this, with these artists and to tell them what my, what my perspective on it is. They're trusting me to make judgments on their behalf. Whether I want to be, be popular with them or not, or be their best friend is a whole different matter. But if I just kind of blow smoke up their ass, I am potentially going to wreck their career. And I yeah. cannot take that responsibility. My responsibility is to put the artist in their work above anything else. Yeah. Um, which often means also running afoul of their egos. Sure. You know, because as you know, when you work I guess in accordance with that kind of, with an ideal, especially when you put the artist in their work above all things that their ego has nothing to do with that. And sometimes you wind up pissing people off, telling them things they don't want to hear. Very, very familiar with it. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so and you have to be went, that way though. And otherwise you just don't feel good about, you know, yourself. If you're not, you know, giving your honest gut feeling, you're not doing them a service at all. You know, I've, I know a lot of people who don't mind. Yeah. I know I've, I know a lot of people who don't mind, who would rather be friendly with the artist and who would rather tell the artist things that make them feel good in the moment. Yeah. And in many cases, if they do that, they're not necessarily risking the artist's career because the artist is already superlative enough that they'll be able to get through. But with an artist like the way I work is much different. I could not do that. I could not lie to an artist and I could not put myself in a position where it's all about trying to make the artist feel good and be their friend. I no, simply I, can't. And I, I found over the years with my, you know, I'm three decades into this career and still doing it full time. Um, the, 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 the relationships that last the longest are the ones where you were the most honest because th those people get to, to know that they can count on you to say, you know what, you sound like you're gargling on thumbtacks. I mean, can we do this another day? You know, those are the kinds of things that even though they might be mad at you a good percentage of the time, that's why they keep coming back to you because they can trust you, you know? So yeah. I think, I think that's yeah. really admirable. And I, I've always tried really hard to stick to that myself. And I, sometimes I know I've lost work because of it, but that's how it goes. Well, it, in my experience, it's yielded the best results. That's yep. all I can say. Yep. And I, I've tried, I tried to stick to that. Um, they didn't like what I told them, but that put them into writing mode over the next two months. And it cranked out what I consider to be most of the real, of the best songs on the record. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. So it was a, I, I think it, it was definitely a good call in hindsight. Fantastic. You know, and we have a mutual friend that this is a good segue into is um, Fletcher from Mercenary. Like, we, we, oh, I lived you're friendly with Fletcher. Yeah, I, I lived in Boston at the time, and he, I, he used to be, he used to bring pieces of gear by my studio and say, "Hey, use this for a while," and then you get addicted to it, and then you get the bill. <laughs> you know, he was yeah, he, right. But he was wonderful, and he used to speak so highly of you, 
And um, really, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh. And uh, so at that, that was the same era that you know I think maybe you know you were moving into like what they what we I don't know if Fletcher helped you develop the ultra analog um, format, which you guys were doing. Was it two inch uh, eight track? Eight track, yeah. That, that, I think that was, was the result of a phone conversation that he and I had. We, ultra ultra had analog. Convers- I mean, what even the name ultra analog? How did that come about? Like, just that was not my idea. I don't know where that came from. That okay. might have been him. Okay, but uh, no, I was I commissioned the first machine. I was like, wow. I was like, what would happen? Because I've been using sixteen track fifteen ips. Yep. And I was like, what would happen if you had a two inch eight track machine? You know, if you had a, if you had that kind of a head stack, because obviously the sonic difference between 16 and 24 is an extraordinary. You know, six, most people would, would run 24, 30 eps. Right. But when you went to 16, you're at 15 eps. And I just had that experience working with um, Soundgarden, where all the drums were cut at 15 on, on a 16 track and everything else was at 30 on a 24 track. So I was like, you know, he was talking about eight track machines. And I was like, what would happen if you actually, if you had, if you had an eight track machine with a two inch head stack on that. <laughs> and he connected me with this guy, John French, who built head stacks. And uh, I commissioned a head stack for him. And Fletcher actually found a guy in London who had a, um, a Studer 800 for sale, which is the format that I wanted to use. I'll go with what I didn't know was that uh, I was only familiar with the Mark threes, which ran 15 and 30. What I didn't know about the 800 was that the, I, I just bought a Mark one and it, and it ran 15 and 7.5 Ips. <laughs> wow. So when I got, when I, I, I think I found out about this after I bought it, I was like, Oh fuck. I, you know, I felt like I'd been gypped. Because I wanted to be able to run it at 30 if I needed to. I mean, why you would want to do something with a format like that is beyond me, but whatever. So, you know, I think, uh, I can't remember how I kind of uh, sort of changed my thinking about it. But by the time the machine showed up, like completely teched out with the new head stack, Everything's all good to go. Alignment real, you know, all it's all plug and play from there, from there on. Yep. I was like, we're going seven and a half eps. I mean, I did a, te- I did a listening test between 15 and seven and a half eps. And when I tell you that the difference was astounding, it wasn't even just kind of like, wow, that's actually a little better or a lot better. It was, it was obvious. just like, it was about as night and day as you can get. That's so interesting. I mean, yeah. There were so many advantages to running seven and a half eps, one of which was you could get an entire record on a single reel of tape. Yeah, and <laughs> at, at, at 300 bucks a, uh, a reel, I mean, th- that's always an issue when you're doing take after take, my God. It was. And uh, so the, the machine was actually shipped to me. I was doing a session with Ozzy Osbourne at that time yep. in Paris. So I had to have a flight case built for the show. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, oh my oh god! Man, I, and I bet I know the name and, of the company that built it. I, I it's good. It's on. I'll it's bet on, you do. It's on the tip of my tongue because I, I think I paid. Future case. That's it. 
I, I, spent, I think I spent like $2,500 on a, a rack mount case for a they bunch were, of analog gear that I had to ship around yeah, back in the day. Fletcher's friends, yeah. yes, who supposedly built cases for like nuclear armaments <laughs> and stuff like that. Whether that's true, I have no idea. Yeah, if he said it, it's, I believe him. Yeah. But so the tape machine shows up, you know, and we start doing these tests and seven and a half eps was just staggering. I mean, the the front end which is something that you don't normally get on tape because obviously there's compression. You right. lose a lot of the transient response of a sound, especially a fast transient sound, um, was so powerful that we had to listen at all times with a stereo compressor across the bus. If you took that compressor off for even a moment, you'd blow the speakers. Wow. So much <laughs> low end. That's ins- that is so cool. I mean, it was the attack and the low end. So and the air, you would just like you would get had, wind. Wind would come from the speakers, right? I had an experience that I've never had before. The experience was listening on NS10s and thinking that there was a subwoofer somewhere in the room. <laughs> I don't know how that's physically possible, but this machine could make NS10s sound like actually reproduce frequencies audibly in like below 60 hertz, like probably in like the 30, 40, 20 hertz range. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, people would come into the room and they'd be like, where's your subwoofer? And I'd be like, there's no subwoofer on that. And they'd be like, bullshit, there's a subwoofer on that. That's deep. And I was like, I know it's deep. (laughs) It's deeper than you'll ever hear. Yeah, (laughs) that's just pioneering something that, I mean, this is music history right here. This is important stuff. And and I'm so excited to get all this down with you because I remember the first time hearing like I just I always jump to Black Hole Sun because I mean I remember hearing that even on the radio which is like quadruple compressed a billion times uh, going like what the hell is going on with those drums I mean it's like it's the most gigantic <laughs> ridiculous it's almost like bigger than it's bigger than life and I just I just was like and then that's when I would talk to Fletcher and he would tell me about the ultra analog thing. So it just, it, it literally was, I mean, historically changing everything. I mean, that's really. Well, that record wasn't done with the, with the eight track. No, that record no kidding. was done with a 16 track. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, the eight track was like a year later. Okay. Um, still, yeah. still though. I mean, just like the whole format, the two inch uh, analog format with, you know, the, the lower track count. I mean, whatever you were doing, it was, it was pioneering something that oh, I've never a, heard before. No, it was a it was a big deal. No, Super Unknown, I was, I'm, I'm very proud of those drum sounds. And it was funny because it was such an uphill battle with the band because I think that they really want to spe- wanted to spend as little time making the record as possible. And here I am kind of like finagling over like these little details and they just hated it. <laughs> you know, like moving mics a fraction of an inch, changing heads. And even the engineer didn't like it, you know, but I was like, my mission for, for them was to make something that was going to last. You know that was going to be meaningful and was going to was going to have relevance, you know, for for a long a long time to come. Well, I mean, it was historically one of the greatest sounding records of all time. I mean, I I, I can say that unequivocally. Um, any any, I mean, like I, I, when I first talked to you, I said, "Geez, we could do a whole like episode just on Black Hole Sun because I mean, I, I, the Leslie guitars. I mean, there's just Tell us a little about the Leslie guitars. I mean, I've I've done guitars through Leslie's and they never sounded like that. Like, just tell me some stuff. Give us some stuff. Well, that's because you <laughs> weren't using the same kind of Leslie. I mean, most people go to the 122. Yeah, that's what I um, have. Yep. 
Yeah, which is a great cabinet. And it's nice when you've got that little, the preamp that plugs into it. Um, but this was all because of Chris, because Chris was using a Fender Leslie 16. Oh, wow. Yes. Look it up. It's a Fender Vibratone, I think. I think it's a Fender. Or Vibra, yeah, Vibratone. Fender. Uh, wow, they had an actual Leslie speaker? It's not a Leslie speaker. Really? It's a simulation of a Leslie speaker. Whoa, Check this out. This is it's a little cabinet that does not have any actual electronics. There's no preamp in it. It's just got an electrical circuit that drives the speaker itself. And you use a separate, a separate power amp to get the sound into it. It's basically, it's a speaker that faces out like that. It's a rope, but it's a rotating cone. That is insane. That has a small port that the sound comes out of, which creates the Leslie effect. And it's one of the best Leslie effects ever. It's and crazy. The guy who, one of the guys who used this, or the, the guy who used this the most was Stevie Ray Vaughan, who was into a lot of warbly type guitar stuff. You can see pictures of him performing with with this speaker. Wow. This is like so eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great and and it and one of the things about it too is because it's a smaller cabinet and it's designed specifically for guitar, the sounds more contained. Like the 122 is great, um, and, and you can actually do great things with guitar as well. But it's it's a little bit more diffuse. Yeah, it's a little bit wider and broader. Yeah, that's why it works well with like a you know with a Hammond organ because the sound is so piercing and sharp. But with like a broader range sound, like a guitar, it's much harder to contain. I see. You know, the other thing about the 122 is that you have to mic the bottom speaker. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it just sounds like. Yeah. You know, you get that rumble that that goes on too. Yeah. So when you when you have that, that adds like a whole bunch of other like low mids and things like that that can get in the way of other sounds. So you're not really able to get a very a, a more of a narrow bandwidth that will sit well with other instruments. And that's what the, um, the Fender 16 does beautifully. Yeah. I, I just, that's, it's just a startling, startling sound. And one of the things about that song too, that every little overdub just sits in a place that enhances the lyrics, the vocal, the melody. It's like nothing steps on anything. So you have this massive sound, but it's so well put together. I think, maybe one of your signatures whether you know you, that i've seen is that you really carve out a spot for the 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 singer and the star of the show to, to really be in the focus of the production without it being <gasps> you know overly loud or whatever you know what i mean i mean chris cornell is arguably one of the greatest rock singers ever right i mean come on um so like tell us about the vocal sound on that song and how you worked around it you know i'm laughing because actually i kind of do something that's sort of the reverse of that. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's funny. And what I really do is I kind of paint myself into a corner where I've kind of exhausted all the other variables and I have nowhere else to go. <laughs> 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 it's kind of like the make everything louder than everything else. School. <laughs> it's like once you have the once you have the biggest drums that you can get recorded, it's like you have to have a bass guitar sound that's like it's a, that is kind of like excessive, right? And I I love like dub bass and things yeah, like that, where sure. there's a lot of low sub. end extension. Yeah. So you got yeah you got to have that sub, right? So after that, you have to have guitars that are going to kind of overtake <laughs> everything, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, 
I got nothing. I got no space to put anything else. In. <laughs> I'm going to start like, how is this going to work? Ah. So you do a lot of muting then but, during the mix. Is that like one of the no, things? No, 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 no. It's just what it comes down to is finding the right tools to kind of create the uh, sonic palette for the record. So I can't really think a lot of that stuff out in advance. You know, like I can't, I can't create a template because already once I've cut the drums, I'm already in like unknown territory. I have no idea where I'm going next. I mean, <laughs> there are microphones that I'm pretty sure I'm going to use and preamps that I'm pretty sure I'm going to use and instruments I'm pretty sure I'm going to use and amplification and so on. But I can't be sure. <laughs> like I have to try everything which is great because I love trying everything because that's what life is about, right? That's wonderful. I mean, that's the spirit of making records is that's what it's supposed to be like. That's just like yeah. really inspiring, really inspiring. And it makes me feel good too yeah. because like, you know, you have this image, this vision of like, like, you know, somebody, it's more like finger painting than like an exact, exacto knife carving out like frequencies. It's like, it, I like to think of it like, like that in, from an art standpoint. It's kind of both. Yeah. It's kind of both. Like there's a lot of like, there's a lot of detail work for me anyway that that, that I put that that I'm putting into the the work that I'm doing, you know. Because sonically, to to be able to get things to fit, I mean, obviously, it's easy to say, okay, this is going to be bigger than that, but it, you know, how are you going to do that? Yeah. Right. Yep. You're not just going to say, okay, it's bigger and it's bigger and there it goes because it's bigger. It's like no, because bigger means it's got to, the component parts have to fit with what's there. They have to set in nicely. They have to overtake it, but at the same time, they have to work together with it. And they also have to be in relative perspective. You have to be able, if you need to bring something down, you still have to be able to hear it no matter where it is in relationship to everything else. So there's so many variables to consider in that. And all of a sudden, it's, you really are looking at a lot of refinement too. Sure. So, th so it's a lot of both. It's really yeah. a lot of both. Yeah, I find uh, myself like, if, if something, you keep turning down something, and you and it, it, you keep turning it down, and then suddenly you're like, Jesus! I might as well just leave it out. If it's gonna, if it's yeah. if it's not gonna be heard, you know, I, I yeah. Call, yeah, I call that when in doubt, leave it out. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> but if it's important, yeah. if it's imp there, there are also components that are important but need to be low. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there's so you you have to at least I find I have to find figure out a way to be able to make something audible without having it become overt or overtaking other things. Sure. So sure. as far as Chris, you know, by the time he had to put his vocal on, it was, it was a very broad kind of coloration. It was a very, it was a very broad picture that we had. And we went through a massive amount of microphones and I discovered something very interesting about his voice that he actually had two completely separate ranges one of which was really high and powerful. Right. And the other was like softer, you know, and, and often when he sang softer, he didn't sing it. He didn't like sing. He couldn't sing out. He wasn't in a higher register. Right. He would sing lower. So it was like two almost completely opposing poles. I couldn't find one mic that did both. It was really interesting dilemma. Like there would always like a, the, one mic would always sound good on one register and then like shit on another. Wow. And I further compounded the problem myself because I don't like to stand mics far away from a singer. No, you, I don't either. You know, like, the proper usage of a microphone is probably like six to eight inches from like the source. Yeah, you get that chest. You need that that proximity effect to get the the real low end, not low end, but that just that yep. human 
humanness. Yeah. No, I, basically for me, it's like right there. Yeah. For the verses, especially, <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you know, so, so but you don't want to be know, riding I, the compressor while you're recording the vocal or do you like, like the no, Al Schmidt thing? Uh, yeah. No, not me. Um, that's why Al was so great. Um, but that creates a problem, of course, because you're operating the mic in a way that it's not specifically supposed to be operated. I had to settle for two completely separate microphones. I picked a, um, a Neumann 67 for the quiet stuff and uh, a modified U47 FET for the loud stuff. And we made this signal chain that was had like four EQs and four compressors. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most insane thing. And I had him sing all the hard stuff and then go back and do the quiet stuff. And we were doing the songs in batches of four, right? So we went through a batch of four songs like that. And then it came time to do the next four. And by that time, I was like, this system is really stupid. <laughs> like, it's just, I, what am I thinking? If we keep working like this, we'll be on this record into next year. You know, because obviously he can't sing the whole song at once. Yep. So I was like, we got to go through another mic shootout. And I was like, I, I realized that one of my problems was that I was going for mics that had a lot of character. And I was like, this guy's voice is enough character. It doesn't need more. What I need is something neutral. So I started going for neutral mics, you know, like a Sankin CU41. Like I started in, in, a, in B&K mics, which are very, very neutral mics. Yeah, B&K. No personality. And I wound up with my least favorite mic in creation, the Neumann U87. Wow. <laughs> After all that. After all that, and you know what's funny is that he, he sounded amazing on the U87. And we had the simple, you know, it was basically one 1073 into an 1176 GML on the back end to like bump up some highs straight to tape. That was about it. Wow. That's cr incredible. And history in the yeah. making. Listen to right, you know. Well, I mean, I love super un super unknown is still a favorite. You know, uh, absolutely for me, for me too. I love celebrity skin. Yep, Hancock's record is great. You know, um, Manson's record. Uh, Tell us know, about Marilyn I, Manson. Uh, working with Marilyn Manson. Tell us a little bit about that, like the programming um, and was, the, all that, that that like the, the sequencing, the modular synth stuff, like that. What do you use? Well, all all the synth stuff had been done before I got involved in the project. Okay. And uh, Pogo Stephen Beer, who was the um, who who did all that stuff, okay. he was. Gosh, he I, he was just so vitally important to that band. You know, he really was a, a singular talent in that world. I mean, I can't think of another band, rock or otherwise, that had a that had a personality or, or a performer or an artist like that, you know, that, that, that was quite like him or did what was able to do what he did because obviously he added a lot of musical stuff to it, but there was so much sonic coloration as well. And he just had this uncanny knack of being able to add the right texture in the right way. And it was, he, he, uh, he, he, basically gave the electronics almost like a, a human personality. Like he sort of imbued them with his own personality. And it was just, 
so wonderful to be working with someone who is that wacky and also that like creative and had come up with all these great ideas. I just, I loved it. That's so cool. I mean, it's, it's inspiring when you, somebody comes up with a sound that's just like, where did that come from? Like one of my favorite stories in, on this topic is a friend of mine ran Maison Rouge Studios in London during the heyday of all the Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all that. And Andy, oh, yeah. Andy Richards was the a big keyboard guy in, in England at the time doing all this Fairlight and all the sequencing and all those records. Right. And they were in the mix down for Frankie Goes, for the song Relax. And they were actually yeah. recording the, the print of the final mix. And Andy stops. Wait. He's like, I got an idea. And this is like they're bouncing the mix. He goes out into the studio and he has a PA on his rig and they hear from the other room booming, bomb, bomb, bomb. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> is that where that came from? That's, that's exactly what happened. So it's like, at the, oh, that's so cool. Like the song was almost in the can. And then right. he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, and what would that song be without that? So the, these, these, wouldn't. yeah, these guys that are like Andy and the guy you're talking about from Maryland's band, they, they have these, these moments that just like, as a producer, it's our, our job to, to recognize it and give them their space and let them do their magic. You know, it's like, that's part of the art is letting people do what they do best. Yep. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really one of the things that I think that we're missing from the act of uh, creating now and uh the whole process of making pop music is really not letting people do what they do best and really kind of really kind of squelching that and kind of inciting them to or and uh, um i guess kind of pushing them to do something that's very foreign to them that's actually that actually sounds like what other people do but it's more of a that, that's really kind of the direction that uh that music as a create has as what I could, I think we could have called a creative industry years ago has really kind of devolved into. I feel like it, it, I have being on the hopeful side. I I feel like that there gets to a certain point where there, there's a pushback and people get to a point like that. Wait a minute, it's like, hmm, you know, what's wrong with standing out instead of blending in? And I think like if you go back to the early '80s, like Cyndi Lauper and all these incredible artists that had these flamboyant like looks and personalities and everything i think that culture is, is slowly slowly finding its way back you know i think it's i think what happens there's a backlash when when everything becomes so cookie cutter and so predictable and so trendy that for people to have an identity and break out of the box eventually that becomes that comes back in fashion and i honestly feel like we are at the beginning of that i mean i have to be hopeful you know I think it's a little harder than that this time, though. And the yeah. reason that I think that is because these elements have pervaded into every aspect of society. It's not sure. just sure. It's not just what culture and music was turning into. It's basically everything. Sh We're basically being con converted into a very homogenized, homogenous society. And it's going to take, I feel, a tremendous amount of effort. Uh, I do believe it's out there. And honestly, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing. Yep. Because I have a lot of faith in uh, in the community of, of young artists now. And I just want to be able to share the best that I can offer with them so that they can kind of go on and do what it is that they need to do. Absolutely. That's wonderful. That's the that's a perfect, you know, way to, you know, help and nurture and create a new a new a new force, a new, a new way of thinking. Yeah. And yeah, I, exactly. I, feel, I feel like I'm there too at this point in my life. And I'm, as I work with people and one of the first things I say is like, 
you really, you know, you want to blend in or do you want to stand out? I mean, come on. It's like there, it, there is yeah. a time, you know, that where you have to yeah. like make your statement and not be afraid to, to not blend in, you know? So yep. Michael, this yeah. has been like one of the most amazing experiences. I really want to stay in touch and oh. just, I mean, I, I just, Thank you. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm serious. I mean, this is just really, really special to me. And, uh, I think people are going to be very inspired by this and, you know. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, man. It's great to have you and let's keep in touch. And, uh, yeah, I want to hear about some of your new projects, you know, um, if there's anything you want to add that you're working on now, um, that you'd like to throw in the, uh, you know, I'm all ears, um, uh, for, you know, in the future we can. Well, I mean, at, at this particular point in time, I think what I'm doing is kind of more important than anything I've done before, you know, uh, being able to provide production to people on such a, um, on, on a, on a much larger scale. Yep. Because previous to this, I was working with the 0.001% of like right. artists and stuff. And now it's like the 99.999%. And it's a whole different thing. I mean, it's, this is an opportunity to really get to, to, ins to help inspire other artists artists who aren't going to, who might not ever be able to get a recording contract and help them in their journey and help move them along and really kind of like inf influence the consciousness of what's out there in the world more than just, you know, I mean, I obviously I'm very proud of the work that I've done and the records that I've course, done. Like, yeah. and I, and I'm, and I'm so happy that, that they've resonated with so many people, but I feel like that's sort of like the jumping off point. Sure. In, in many, in many ways. This is really inspiring to me too, because I'm at a point in my life where I, I want to, you know, make a difference and, and, and share like the last three decades of my life and what I've learned from making records with people. And it's really inspiring to me. And I, I can't thank you enough for all the inspiration today. You know? Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. I'm yeah. glad. Thanks guys. That's going to wrap up this two-parter with Michael Beinhorn and thanks for coming. And we'll see you next time on Studio Secrets A to Z. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.